things could be happening to us. And so today I want us to, you know, kind of talk about a big idea of where are we really at as a church in the different generations. Some of the Christians in this church have been for 30 years. Some of us haven't even been in church for 30 days. We've got a wide range, right, of people in this church. And, and where are we at? And, and where does God want us all to be? Where does God want to take us uh, as a church? And that's the idea we're talking about here uh, this evening. Um, there's a great book uh, by Arnold Cook uh, called Historical Drift. Uh, and it talks about this pattern uh, that emerges really through most denominational history. If you take any denomination that, that, that is known, over about a hundred year period, there tends to be a drifting that occurs and, and a loss of stamina and strength and zeal uh, and even just membership numbers. And so the whole book is called Historical Drift. And the idea that the, the big pattern um, in Historical Drift you know, is just this. Um, it's this idea... Um, that you know, you, you start with you know you start with a man right or a group of men or women and they start you know a passion movement right they start this movement and it starts to move and God starts to work and does incredible things and, and most church stories start that way right and but over time uh, the zeal starts to fade uh, the older generation they, they get older life goes on life gets busy the next generation starts to come up and and, and, and eventually uh, the, the the whole organization rather than still being a movement can turn into this idea of machinery, people going through the motions, just being religious. This is what we do, this is how we do it. And eventually, of course, sadly, it then becomes a monument. The church buildings are shut down. The organization no longer really even exists in the way that it used to. And if you go through a lot of denominational histories, you'll see just that. This idea of, of historical drift. Um, and so, you know, we're 30 years in as a church, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, where are we at? Where are we at? Because there's a point you get to, a point you get to uh, on this whole on this whole dynamic that is very dangerous. Um, and the point you get to um, as we move on here is, is at some point, as you start to, to, to move toward what God wants as a church, you know, you're on the rise, right? As the red dot goes up there, right? And, and you get to this point here, and that's a very dangerous point because things are going really good. God is working. Jesus is the same as He was yesterday, and everyone's enjoying life, and things seem to seem great. But but things can start to twist and turn as we get older. As another generation rises up, and that's a real dangerous point. And there's a point in time where we are called to, to lift even higher again, to recommit ourselves to Christ, to recommit ourselves to His Great Commission, to recommit ourselves to one another. And if we don't do that, at some point we start to get past that lift, and we start to drift and decline. And there's a real danger point in all the books that you study on this concept of churches, where if you get to a certain point, it's almost impossible to lift again. And so we as a church, we, we don't want to get to this point. We we want to you know we want to you know recognize you know where we're at before we get to that point and lift again. And I don't know exactly where we're at in this uh, particular graph. And some of you scientifically right now are already confusing as to what this means. There's an X and a Y, and what does it all mean? But obviously, as membership increases, uh, you know, and time goes on, it's easy for that historical drift to occur as a church. So that is the thing that we want to really dive into and talk about here uh, you know, in our time today. And I want you to really think about this and not be proud and say, oh, that's not us for us. No, we're, 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 we're lifting right now. We're, we're, we're beyond that era. We're so high up there. You know, to, to be humble and say, you know, where, where are we? Where are we as a church? Where are we? Is Jesus still the same as he ought to be in our lives and in our ministries? You know, at some point, you know, we start managing decline, 
versus actually repenting and growing. That's a that's a scary place. For example, you know our church meetings. You know the, the frequency of them, the timing of them. You know uh, we we as a church decided we were going to move from Friday to Wednesday because we felt like part of the thing with Friday was it was convenient, it was easier, but we didn't necessarily think spiritually it was better. The more we talked about it, we thought as a church overall, spiritually it's better to meet up on Wednesday night. Yeah, it's harder. To meet up on a Wednesday night and a Friday for most people, but spiritually there's a benefit to it. And so we decided by faith to make that switch, and I think the church has responded quite well to that kind of a change. And so these are the kinds of things, right, that we gotta be thinking about um, and talking about. Uh, the first thing here we'll examine a bit more closely then is the danger of drift. You know, do we really understand the danger of drift and how to discern? The danger of drift and how to discern. For example, in our, in our outreach, our evangelism. We know that Jesus calls us in the Great Commission of Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. That we're, we're on a mission, right? And so maybe as a young Christian, you know, maybe you, you, you shared your faith with whoever you could, whenever you could, as much as you possibly could. That was just your, that was your passion, right? Because that's what Jesus he was calling you to do. So you might spend, you know, two or three hours a day sharing your faith before, at lunch break, afterward, even if you were working or if you were single, you had more time. If you were stupid, you had but now it can be easy to say, well, I talked to somebody today, and that's enough. And that might be an example of drift in our own life. Uh, and so on and so forth. You know, the meetings, of course, is another example of that. Uh, there's a great quote in this book called Slouching Toward Gomorrah. If you know the story, you'll figure out the title of that book. It says, with each new evidence of deterioration, we lament for a moment, referring to the church, and then we become accustomed to it. It's like the frog in the kettle. Yeah. The old analogy, right? You, you can't boil a frog, frog by just throwing him in a, in a boiling kettle. He'll, he'll jump out quickly. But if you just slowly turn up the heat over time, the frog eventually will be boiled in that, in that particular kettle. And that's often how churches spiritually slowly start to die. Uh, the book of Hebrews is an interesting book um, to consider all this. And I encourage you to study that. If this is something you really want to dive deeply into. Because um, the Hebrew... Uh, text was written, we don't know exactly who necessarily wrote it, lots of views on who might have written it, but it was written about 30 years into the church, and so, you know, it was written about the same period of the time of the church that we are, the church coming up upon 30 years, and what is one of the big warnings in Hebrews 2 verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. So God has always been concerned with this idea, this idea of, of, of a spiritual drift occurring amongst his people. Um, and really, uh, you know, this chart, I think, displays it quite well. Uh, you start always with, you know, the, the founders and the pioneers, and they're usually, you know, sold out, committed, they're, they're, they're all in, right? Uh, but then the second generation comes up, and they, they reap the benefits of the pioneers and, and the founders. And they, they, they just inherit the church. They don't really necessarily go, they just inherit it, right? And so it's easier for them to then expect less out of themselves because they already have so much. And then, you know, you get to the third generation, it becomes, you know, a bit more that way. And by the fourth generation, and this is just about a hundred year period, uh, you can be nothing like what you started with in the beginning. Uh, and it's quite interesting when you dive into the Bible, we'll do that right now, turn to the book of uh, Joshua. When you dive into the Bible, you actually see a great Old Testament example of this, and you see a great New Testament example of this as well. We'll spend a little bit of time here in the Bible here uh, to make this a biblical case as well. Just a nice idea from a few books. Uh, the book of Joshua. Uh, Joshua, of course, is the successor to Moses, right? He's praying for him here. And uh, Israel has, has, has left Egypt, right? And God's taken them to the promised land through Moses' leadership. Uh, they arrive, and, and Moses 
Moses dies off, and Joshua then is meant to succeed Moses and, and, and continue the work of God restoring Israel uh, to its prominent place there in the promised land. And in, in the book of Joshua chapter 24, I will read this about Joshua and his generation uh, that came after Moses. It says in Joshua 24, uh, verses uh, uh, seven, uh, I'm sorry, verse 14, he's talking to uh, He's talking to that generation that he's now leading. He says, Now fear the Lord, in Joshua 24, verse 14, and serve him with all faithfulness. Though the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, Joshua famously says, We will serve the Lord. They go back and forth, you know, they say, No, no, we, you know, we, we won't do that. We, we will serve the Lord. And he says in verse 19, You're, you're not able to. He says, No, 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 we will, we will. In verse 21. So Joshua says, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Uh, and, and they go on and they reaffirm, uh, basically, the rest of the chapter, they reaffirm the covenant. And then in verse 31 of Joshua 24, it notes, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. Uh, and so we can, we can you know, then turn to the book of Judges, which picks up after Joshua dies. In Judges chapter 2, uh, in verse 7, again we see a similar statement about this now, now second generation. It says, The people served the Lord, in Judges 2, sorry, verse 7, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And of the others who have lived in, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So it seems like the second generation, those who have lived in Joshua, they also were living the way God wanted them to live. But then we go down to chapter 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did humanly after the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed worship of various gods and the peoples around them, and they aroused, it says, the Lord's anger. And then you get down to Judges um, chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And these were different you know, leaders, different prophets, of who God you know, would raise up. And as they would listen to the judge, they would repent, and they would get back on track, and as soon as the judge, you know, would, 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 would be gone, they would fall back into. And so the, the third and fourth generation it gets more and more sinful, less and less committed to what God wanted. So we see this historical drift occurring amongst uh, the Israelites. Uh, just quickly here, as we dive into uh, the book of Judges. Um, and so, you know, you, you go to the end of Judges, Judges chapter 17. I'm sorry, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. What does it say? In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So one of the worst statements in the book of Judges is it got so bad, it was just it was just all about I'm king. The standard is going to be my standard. I'll do, I'll do whatever I want. I'll live however I want. That was all where the generation started to head. But it didn't happen overnight. It happened slowly over time. One generation to another was lessening down God's standards and God's truths. To the point where everyone did as he saw fit. The me church today is what that would be. We just, we just walk in here and say, it's all about me. It's all about what I want. It's all about how I want to see church and how I want church to be. Rather than God's word and God's will and what God wants in our lives. And if that could happen to, to just a few generations after people, you know, these people's grandparents, they saw Moses part the Red Sea. They, they saw Joshua part, you know, part the Jordan. 
But just, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, they've lost the whole connection to God and His standards. If that can happen to them, who are we to think that can happen to us? Go to the New Testament, we have another example. The church in Ephesus, very famous church, interwoven throughout uh, the New Testament books. Uh, we know Paul started the church in Acts 19, uh, the first strike there. Uh, he, he starts the church in Acts 19 around 55 AD. Um, and some incredible stuff happens there. All kinds of incredible conversions. Uh, that's where they publicly burn all the scrolls. You know, there's just, you know, God was just doing incredible things. Paul spends about three years in the church in Ephesus. I bet that was a pretty good three year stint there in the church. When you got the Apostle Paul leading, you know, that must have been an incredible time. History also tells us around, around that time in the 50s, uh, church history is not in the Bible, uh, that John the Apostle moved to the church in Ephesus along with uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So not only had the Apostle Paul, then added John the Apostle and Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, you can redefine sin against Jesus a whole other way when his mother was there, you know, uh, in the service, you know, uh, you know with you. That's, wow, that's, that's a serious first generation faith right there uh, in the church in Ephesus. And we read about it in Ephesians 2 and so on and so forth. Um, but as you go through the New Testament, you start to see that Ephesus starts to slip. Uh, Timothy, uh, who's raised up by Paul as, a, as an evangelist, is sent uh, to, uh, to, to actually uh, visit the church in Ephesus. And what does Paul say in 1 Timothy 1? Uh, this is now, uh, you know, about you know, 10, 10 or so years after Paul started the church. Uh, Paul is writing Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And things don't look as good. 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, starting in verse uh, 3, he says, I urge you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations, rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And so, Paul now has to send Timothy into Ephesus because there's false doctrine that's being promoted, and there are leaders who are focusing people on all kinds of things that don't need to be focused on, so the church is being harmed in the process. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's gone from a really great church uh, to a church that is starting to fade. Uh, you know, and it's interesting in, in, in churches, as, as fervor fades, as zeal and conviction fades, it's easier to become Bible debaters rather than disciple makers. Well, what about this part of, of, of our faith? And what about that part of our faith? And do we really get this? And do we really get that? And that's exactly what's going on here. Controversies and speculations and arguing about, you know, about words. And it's so easy for us in the church we lose our grasp on that to, to, to be called the same way. Bible debaters rather than disciple makers. In Acts 20, we know Paul meets back up with the Ephesian elders, and he says, From among your own number, men will arise to distort the truth. So even their elders might have been part of this false teaching that we read about uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's why we have to be very careful of uh, putting people in those positions. Um, and then, of course, uh, Paul writes another letter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, in verse 1. He, he says, But mark this to Timothy. There will be a terrible time in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. That's the first city he calls up. They'll be lovers of themselves. Uh, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, in verse 1. And so, you know, it sounds like, you know, now that's a sin. You know, it's the new church, as we talked about earlier, right? Um, you know, as we get proud, as we get lazy, it's easy to replace the love of Jesus with love of self. Right? Which is what I'm calling here, you know, the, the new church. You know, I've even been in conversations recently where, uh, you know, oh, why, why don't you come to that meeting? Well, I don't get much out of it. I don't come to that meeting, you know, whether it's a midweek or a Bible talk or whatever. I don't come to that meeting because I don't get much out of it. But I, I don't see anything in the New Testament that 
like a person gets something out of it. Yeah, that will happen. I'll be encouraged as I come. But Hebrews 10 says we, we come to spur each other on. I should show up to, to encourage you. I should show up to be encouraged by you. Although, obviously, if you come to encourage me and I come to encourage you, we'll both be encouraged. Amen. But that kind of thinking, I've heard of even conversations I've had in our church. Well, I don't really come to that because that doesn't really get much out of it for me. It doesn't really work for me. But it's just, it's, it's been a, a lover of myself at some point. That's how I reason through the means of the body. And then what's sad is it just gets worse. Then Jesus has to get involved. The book of Revelation, right? The book of Revelation, uh, Jesus calls out the seven churches of Asia Minor. One of them is the church in Ephesus. Right? And so let's turn to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, verse 1. Through John's revelation, uh, the church in Ephesus gets a little talking to from Jesus himself. Revelation 2, verse, verse 1. And what I love about this is Jesus doesn't encourage them. He says, I know your deeds in verse 2, your hard work and your perseverance, and amen, that's awesome. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, he says, and have not grown weary. They obviously got some of the stuff that Timothy was being called to by Paul to deal with, based on what Jesus says a little later. This is probably written in the 90s now. So, so this, is, this is about, again, about a 40 year period. Where Paul plants a church in the book of Acts, chapter 19, to where John writes Revelation. He writes it in the 90s. We're, we're pretty sure of that. So this is about a 40 year period now. So they've done some great things in those 40 years. But he says in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And so again, you know, from, from you know, the love of Jesus and the selfless love that it always is, to just a, a love of self, a love of self, to the point where Jesus says, you don't even love me anymore. He uses the word forsaken. That's not a, that's not a, a great uh, way to describe a relationship, is it, uh, between, between two people. That's how Jesus feels. The love has grown that cold. And I love the simple solution here. Not more hard analysis, theological debate. Go back to what you did at first. That's the solution, right? That's the solution uh, that Jesus gives us there. It's not complicated in verse 5. Just do the things you did at first. And we'll talk about that here at the close of our time. Some of the solutions to avoid historical uh, drift in our church. Um, and so again, the church of Ephesus, Paul, John, Mary, a revelation directly to Jesus in Scripture. If it can happen to them, it can happen to us. And we need to think about that. The danger of drift. And what's quite interesting is it's not oftentimes I think the world does it. Although we like to think all oh, it's the world, you know, the internet, you know, the secularism, you know, postmodernism, that's what's killing the church these days. It's other religions. Oftentimes, no, it's 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 the standard with each other or the lack thereof. That starts this dangerous pattern. Because if you go into the New Testament, there's this pattern over and over and over of, of this idea of generational transition. You know, we pass off convictions to each other, for better or for worse. First Corinthians 4, 16-17, Paul says to the church of Corinth, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful to the Lord. He reminds you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere and every church. Again, in the same letter, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Yes, ultimately, the example that Paul wanted to set for the church is that of, you need to follow Christ. We're disciples of Jesus. 
But closely related to that is our example to each other. Because we're all, as disciples, following Jesus. And so there's a real correlation there. And so again, you know, is my example calling people to be more like Christ, or is my example calling people to be less like Christ? That's something the older person in this church really needs to think about. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. The question is, how is your example? Is it, is it inspired us toward Christ? That's the question that the new Christians need to ask themselves. You know, only what are you following? You didn't get baptized in someone's name. You didn't get baptized in Jesus' name. Jesus only is your example. And so if the older Christians are not what they ought to be, you need to follow after Jesus. You need to go beyond them. You need to help them or help me to, to get back to where we ought to be. And that's that idea of generational transition. It's really huge. And there's a lot of other places it shows up. Philippians 3.17. 1 Thessalonians 1.6. 2 Thessalonians 3.9. 1 Timothy 4.12. Hebrews 6.12. And Hebrews 13.7. It's all over. It's all over in the New Testament. The way we really, we really affect each other. For better or for worse. And that'll be a big part of one of our solutions. We'll dive into here as we close out um, our time. So there are patterns that are being set. set. That, that, that's inevitable. And this is, you know, this is kind of a danger of what can happen. You know, so let's, let's say, you know, take for example, you know, an 18-year-old in 2000. Right? Let's just, you know, the disciples of the Roman Church was baptized at 18 in the year 2000, right? And so he, you know, he, he, he graduates from uni, he gets married, has a couple of kids, he's working a full-time job, he's getting mortgage to pay, so now he's 33. What happens is over time as you mature in Christ, uh, you know, you get busier. You get more things brought to you uh, over time, you know, your duties, responsibilities. And so your capacity, which is what the circle, the circle represents, it starts to get a little bit smaller. You can't do as much as a 33-year-old married man with two kids as you do when you were a single man at 18 years old on your own. You understand what I'm saying? That's just life. That's the way life works. But as you get older, oftentimes your influence increases. People look to you in the church. People, you know, people consider you a standard to some degree in the church, right? And so you start to then influence someone else. And the danger is that person, they start their standard at where you're at. But they're 18 as well. And their, their, their capacity is much bigger, actually. But this 18-year-old, because he looked at the 33-year-old in that example, this generational transition idea, that 18-year-old already starts to water down the same. Because they, they don't see it. It's hard, you know, they know to follow Jesus, but it's easy to, to make a church, you know, a bit of a ceiling. That's just, you know, part of our tenets. And so if that, if that process continues, see how the circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and see how the, the, the you know, the mentor, the mentoree, or the disciple, or the disciple, the, the circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller to where eventually this fourth generation, about a hundred years later, look how small the circle is. And that's what we just read about with the Israelites and the Old Testament. That's what we just read about with the church in Ephesus. And that's the danger of drift. It's a real thing that has happened throughout church history. And we are now both as a church. I don't know where we're at in this. I'm not trying to make a statement about anybody in this room. And nor am I trying to make a broad statement about our church. But I don't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the older Christians need to talk about this with the younger Christians. I think some of the younger Christians need to talk about this with the older Christians. No, I, I don't. I don't think some of the all of us actually should be thinking about this. All of us should be talking about this. How are we doing with this process? Are we lifting or are we drifting? There's a great uh, passage. Uh, that's the question, right? Where are we at? Where are we at on this chart? Something I want us to really think about. And we're going to spend three more sermons dissecting this a bit more, really talking about it. We're going to have a sermon on lift up the old. We're going to talk about the foundations of this church. 
And we're going to appreciate all the, all the strength and all the perseverance and all the, all the awesomeness that we already have in this church being here for 30 years. We're going to interview some of the mission team members. It's going to be exciting. Another thing lift up the young. We're going to have the young people share some things with us and, and inspire us and get us thinking about you know, their generation, what they're looking to do. Uh, a lot of them are unique in that we're kind of in between the first generation in our movement and we're kind of in between the, the next generation in our movement because we're, we're you know, early 40s. So we're kind of, we're not really, you know, we're, we're kind of in between. So we, we think about this a lot. Um, but I want to encourage us to be like you know, the elders of Issachar. It says there in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, they were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Do we understand where we're at? Is what I, I present to you right now. I want you to think about it. The sky is not falling. You don't need to panic. But where are we at? Are we lifting or drifting? Maybe in some areas we're lifting. Maybe in some areas we're drifting. And are we discerning the difference? And are we thinking about these things? Because there's, there's so much at stake. For us personally in our spiritual lives, there's so much at stake for our church, and there's so much at stake for us to reach our city for Christ. So the danger of drift, and the other point here, where we'll take communion, is the need for lift. We see the danger of drift, but obviously we believe that we know we want to have lift spiritually in our lives. The need for lift. You know, it's time for lift off. You know, let's all rise up. You know, spiritually speaking, I think that Ephesians scares me. When I read Israel, that scares me. You know what I mean? So I, I want to grow. And I hope it, it makes you want to grow too. Um, it's not spiritual propaganda. It's spiritual truth. We're all in danger of drifting rather than living. And so it, it's time for us to lift. It's time for us to lift. You know, I think about all the different parts of the church. You know, it's, it's time for the teens to lift. You know, the teens, you know, have that team rally coming up. And that's, that's an opportunity for the teens to, to rise up. Uh, and to be that inspiration and that example for the older members of the church that you can be. It's so inspiring to see a team on fire for Jesus. It, it, it convicts us all. It shines us all. It calls us higher teens. Are you ready to, to do great things for God? You know, I think of the students. You know, in, in the student ministry, we, we want to live with students. We want to see great things happen. And we want to, you know, the student ministry. To me, the students, you should be challenging all of us who are Christians by the way you live. We should see the way you share your faith, the way you pursue your life, the way you, you want to change the world. We should say, yeah, be like that. Because we are the Christians. We can win you. You know, we need it, we need it, and we need that example from the student ministry, uh, that radical example. You know, that's the way you guys can lift yourself to lift our church. Uh, you know, I think about the singles. I'm very excited. Very excited about the, you know, the, 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 the singles ministry is on the rise. It's already happening. And the singles are already living. They're already taking off. I'm not about that. But, but we, can, we, we can do even more in the singles ministry. Who, who knows, you know, how God's going to work? You know, I think about the marriage ministry. A majority of our membership is marriage. And is the marriage ministry? Is the marriage ministry? Are we living in church? Are we inspiring the church? Are we moving forward? Are we, are we holding it back? We've got to think about that. I know we want to move forward, but how are we going to do that? How do we get there? And that's where we close out our time. There's two quick points here. You know, how do we live? How do we live in all these ministries? Because uh, we all fall into one of those four categories generally, you know, here in the room uh, tonight. The first thing quickly here is, is to live, we've got to re-engage. We've got to re-engage. James 4, verse 10. What does it simply say? Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. You want to lift some of yourselves up before Jesus, right? He will lift you up, James says. You know, I, I love the simplicity, right? Uh, Revelation 2, uh, verses 4 to 5. You know, lay on a couch. 
because you've forsaken your first love and analyze grace and analyze truth and analyze your conversion and analyze the church. That's not what Jesus says. He says, do the things you did at first. That's all he says. And for, for, for us, you know, we've been being Christians for a few years now. It's just, it's just living for Jesus and with Jesus the way you did when you were a young Christian. There, there, there is nothing but, but want and desire and passion to have a quiet time. It was a privilege. It was an honor. You, you woke up before the alarm went off because you wanted to get in your Bible and read it. You got up at 6 a.m. gladly and met that brother in the middle of the city to pray to your Lord. You know, wiping the sleep out of your eyes. You know, it's, it's that kind of heart for our relationship with God. And we all know what that feels like. You know, because we were all young Christians at one point if we made it a little bit, you know, spiritually. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, Jesus, Jesus wants to use me to save the world, but well, then I have a mission. I have a purpose that's greater than my job, greater than paying my mortgage, greater than my hobbies, and greater than even myself. It's to, it's to be a part of God's great plan to redeem the world. Sign me up. Where do you need to do that? Where do you need me to go? I'm willing to do it. It's, it's that kind of heart. And that part is not a display, or it's not in the things that we do. And so we've got to re-engage Jesus, and it's really that simple. To me, it's like it's, it's, you know, finding Jesus, is, it's, again, is like falling in love. You know, I think of when I was dating Mandy. We were long distance dating. She was eight hours drive from me. We meet up you know, in the state of West Virginia. I'm from Ohio. She was in Maryland. You know, you're in geography. It's backwards from your seat. But we meet up, and, 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 and you know, we, we meet up for the day on Saturday. We get back you know, for church the next day. Me and brothers, we were ushering and doing things. And, and you know, the guys go, what time are you leaving for? 6 p.m. Okay, 6 p.m. 6 p.m. They're looking at me like... I'm like, 15 more minutes, 15 more minutes. And I'm talking to Andy, and then it's 6.30, then it's 7, then it's 7.30. I'm giving money on the table, and I'm just, <laughs> stay with her, be with her. You know, I'm going to say goodbye. And it tore me up when we say goodbye on those days. Now, it's falling in love with her, right? I remember the first time I held Mandy's hand. It's just like, oh. Speak up when things are unhealthy. No one had you know, only Jesus is Lord, no man or woman 
is Lord of someone else. Heaven forbid we go back to this kind of practices. But we still need, for Jesus to be the same, those kinds of relationships. We need those kinds of relationships. Part of keeping Jesus the same is listening, considering, and imitating one another. Dynamic disciple relationships. But oftentimes, over time in the church, our, our relationships can be more about our friendships. Who we like and who we get along with better. Or our common interests. Or our life status. Rather than about the dynamic discipling relationships. You know, which, which defines our relationships more in the church? Is it discipling or geography? Is it discipling or life stage? Is it discipling or personal preferences? If we want to re-engage Jesus, we must re-engage discipling each other in a healthy and good way. Now, again, that's a great conversation to have in our family groups, you know, in our ministries. You know, how is that done? You know, to, to, to live, we've got to re-engage Jesus. And we've got to re-engage one another because the church is the body of Christ. The church is a part of Jesus. You cannot separate the head from the body. It all works together. So to let us re-engage Christ in disciple relationships. And finally, here before we take a to let we've got to recommit. We've got to recommit. Not just re-engage, but recommit. What am I talking about? I'm talking about recommitting to the Great Commission. Are we really committed to it? It is a commission, so you must commit. Those, 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 those words work hand in hand, right, with each other. Are we really committed to making disciples of all nations in our church? You know, the, the call to save the world is a high and great purpose. It, it can and will lift us in the whole world in the process, right? You know, Matthew 28, 18-20, uh, you know, uh, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth have given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And sure that I'm with you always, he says, right, to the very end of the age. I always didn't agree because you've heard it so many times. But that's the problem sometimes. We've heard it so many times. It's like that, you know, that 90s coffee that you used to love. Like everyone in America had a in the blowfish, and they just played them over and over and over and over. You know, they got tired of my family, they got tired of Dave Matthews' game, because I played them over and over and over and over. And, and of course, the great commission sometimes is just, it's just, it's just words. Rather than a passion, a calling, a standard for our whole life. I mean, what is more important? What is more important in my fingers than that call from Jesus? The only thing that's more important than that is to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love each other. That's the only thing I can think more important than that. But even those two things, they go hand in hand. If I really love Jesus, and I really love my brother and sister, and I really just love other people, of course I'm going to want to help them become disciples. If there are disciples, of course, I'm going to want to help them obey everything that Jesus, whom they love, has commanded them. So it all ties together. It all ties together. You know, we do not graduate from discipleship university. We don't graduate in this life. That's heaven. Heaven is when we graduate, right, uh, from discipleship you. And a great question for all of us, if we're members of this church, is who is teaching me to obey everything Jesus commands? That's the question I need to ask myself. And you should be asking me. That's a question I should be asking you. Who is teaching you specifically to obey everything Jesus commands? Do you have those kinds of relationships in the church that, that you really are trying to fulfill the Great Commission? Because unfortunately when it breaks down, uh, you know, this chain of discipleship and this chain of fulfilling the Great Commission, we actually become a dead end in the Great Commission. Spiritually speaking, are you a dead end in the Great Commission? That's, that's, that's kind of crazy to think about. That's actually what happens when we stop listening to Jesus' call to make the signs of all nations and obey everything He has commanded. 
And so the simple solution for us all is to all recommit to obey the Great Commission. You know, what a great purpose we can have, you know, and it ushers in head more of heaven, you know, to the earth. And imagine, imagine we all say, you know, we have our almost 130 members in the Berkman Church. Imagine we all decide to simply obey the Great Commission. Now we all say, you know, we, we hand up a piece of paper, yes, I will, sign me up, and we, we, we recommit ourselves to that. Imagine just a decade of that. I've done the math here. Imagine just a decade, and I don't know if this is possible or not, but I think the math is, and I kind of wish this was a white map, I see it a little bit better. Uh, but if you break it down, you know, is it possible by faith, and even by sight, that each disciple in our church can help one other person become a disciple in the next year? By faith, surely that can happen. I don't take faith sometimes to believe that, for some of the younger Christians and some of the older Christians, but surely, in 365 days, surely you can help someone become a disciple. This is not a new concept for the old Christians, right? We've heard these kinds of ideas before. If everyone did that, in 2018, we'd have 260 members, right? The church would double. Um, is that healthy? Is it unhealthy? I don't know. Um, I think we have to, you know, uh, ask God to, to, to use us. We have to ask God to do more. I, I think God certainly wants to do more than we, we, we can ask or imagine. According to Ephesians 3, because surely God, you know, we won't do that. Why would God not want to save more souls rather than less? Um, and so, again, if that process goes on year after year after year, you know, from 260 to Sodom in 2018 to 520 in 2019 to 1,040 in 2020, all the way down, you know, over just a 10-year period, you know, the, the church membership, you know, could be 133,120. In 2026, if we did that every year, in 2026, you know, we, we couldn't even meet and build a stadium for church if we did that. Build a stadium on about, about 40 some thousand. We, we'd have 66,000 people. We couldn't even build a stadium. We have to have people like, like, swinging out in the parking lot or something. As a church. You know, and if we continue on that path, we, 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 we couldn't even meet Willie Stadium. And then the following year, we have 66, you know, 133,120 members. Willie Stadium you know, only holds 90,000 down there in London. Again, you know, that, that's, that's, the, that's the idea. That's the possibility. You know, imagine if we all recommit to this. What could happen? How this could lift us all. And then I get the skepticism. I hear it. I know some of you are thinking this right now. Okay, for us, you know. Nice idea. Church of Wembley Stadium. That's cute. You know, I get it because I can think the same way. I can think the same way sometimes. But but surely God could do something like that. Our 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 family, our church wide membership is over hundred thousand members. God surely you know he should he did that in thirty years as a church family around the world. And so it's so possible that God could do far more than we could ask or imagine. You know, if we were just really committed to Jesus and His mission, you know, maybe that's a foolish view, but, but, but aren't we supposed to be fools for Christ? Aren't we supposed to have that kind of faith and think that something like that is actually possible if we just commit uh, to the call from Jesus in the Great Commission? Again, you know, is it healthy? I don't know. Could you disciple one person who then disciples another year after year? I think you could do that. Could you just disciple one person who then disciples another the following year? I think you could do that. But yeah, we're young Christians, but I think as a young Christian, I'd say the mission probably disciples me as much as any man. When I was a young Christian, it's helping people become Christians. You sit down with somebody and teach them and call them to a standard that you're not living out, it challenges you and calls you back. And so, you know, again, I'm not worried about the systems or how we're going to take care of it. The question is, are we committed to that heart? That, that God's heart is our heart. We want to bring the gospel and God's grace to this lost world in every way that we possibly can. It comes back to being true disciples. God does the rest.
God does the rest. And so the other way, the other way to live is to recommit, recommit as a church to the Great Commission. We're closing our time here tonight. I know I've gone a little long. Thank you for listening. But I want us to think. I want us to be talking about these things. I, I want us to have a conversation, a dialogue. And I want us to be praying together about these things and committing to these things. And I really believe God can use, he can use us uh, to see you know, this church, you know, uh, this 30-year anniversary that we're lifting. And we're going places, you know, that God has taken us to places we never could have imagined as we celebrate 30 years, you know, next year, um, in 2018. We'll take a minute here to close out our time. James chapter 4, verse 10, we read it earlier, right? It simply says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You know, as Jesus allowed himself to be lifted up on a cross, right? We were all given an opportunity to humble ourselves. And that's what I love about the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ, all ground is level. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter how much sin you have in your, in your spiritual account or life there. Right? It, you know, it, it doesn't matter you know, where you come from. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you're a human, he died for you. If you're a human, he died because of you. Because he died for our sins. He died for our sins. And so if we really get that, what do we do? We, we humble ourselves before him. We, we, we fall at the cross on our knees. You know, if you're visiting with us uh, tonight, you know, have you humbled out before Jesus? It's a question I want to ask you. Have you humbled out before Him? You know, and, and what or who will lift you up? All the Bible says only Jesus and the angel will lift you up. You know, society, humanity has lots of ways they claim to be able to lift you up, but only Jesus, according to the Bible, will really lift you up in life. In church, as we take communion at this time, I think we're reminded as we think about generational drift or lift to stay home. Let, let, let's be humble in light of these ideas of drifting or lifting. And, let, and let's stay humble. So God might keep lifting us up. That's his part. That's his plan. And if some died, gave his body, gave his blood, so that we could be lifted up. So that we might be lifted up. But, but we will not be lifted up if we don't stay humble. So as we take communion, let's, let's, let's be humble. Let's be grateful for the sacrifice that was made by Jesus. So we can have that chance in all generations, from the oldest of us to the youngest of us, to be lifted up by God. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll take communion together here to close our time. One more song. Father in heaven, thank you so much. Uh, what, a, what a privilege, what a gift. Only because of your grace that was poured out through Jesus' blood and body that was broken. Only because of that grace, God, do we have the opportunity to come before you today. Uh, we're broken vessels, God, all of us. Uh, we fall short, even when we know better, uh, of your standards and of your ways, God. We, we all have sinned. Uh, and as we sin, God, we start to drift. As we sin, God, we, we start to lose uh, that change. We start to, to lack that repentance, God. But we want to, uh, tonight, as a church come before you, and just humble ourselves, God. Humble ourselves before your Son on the cross. Uh, we ask, God, as we drink uh, this uh, grape juice that represents your Son's blood, and as we take this bread that represents his body, uh, we ask you, God, to help us to be humble and to really think about the, the price that was paid. Uh, grace is free for us, but it cost Jesus his very life. We pray, God, that we can be moved by that as we take communion together. We pray uh, those in the room are busy with us, God, they're not yet Christians. Uh, although they, they may not take the communion with us, they can too think about humbling themselves before you, God. Uh, we thank you so much, God, for all that you do for us. We thank you, God, that you want to lift us. Uh, for the next 30, 60, 90 years as a church, God, until your son returns, take us home. We pray to Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.